Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. So this morning, again, I'm so glad you're with us. We are back in the Gospel of Luke, just trying to get deeply into our learning straight from the life of Jesus. And we're in, this morning, the passage Joy just read, we're in a long section of scripture where Jesus is teaching in in words in this moment. So remember the disciples, beyond the 12, a group of followers of Jesus are committed to following after him, observing his ways, learning from his actions and from his words, teaching as they went along. And so as Justo Gonzalez points out where we are, I always like to give us context of our little portion of scripture. In the section we're in now, Justo Gonzalez points out, Jesus just has been teaching about one of the most common issues of stewardship, which was the management of possessions. And now he comes to another central issue of stewardship, which is our lives in the in-between times, the time when Jesus has ushered in the kingdom and that the kingdom is yet to come. And so in this section of stewardship, Jesus has been talking in a long parable about uh, slaves being faithful to their master, even when the master is gone and they do not know when he's going to return. And he talks about how will the master find you when he comes home unexpectedly? And so I'm gonna back up for a minute. So we have the idea of the arc of this teaching, going back to 12, verse 35, starting in 35. Be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet. So when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly I tell you, he will dress himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. What an image, right? When the master comes and if he finds his servants having been faithful in his absence. And Jesus goes on to talk about the ones who were not faithful in the waiting while the master was away. But the idea is this very intense sense, the master will return. That part is sure. How are you acting faithfully in the waiting? In the end of the passage that Joy read today, we hear Jesus saying, you know the signs of the weather. You know when a sign is showing you what's about to come. Can't you see what's happening now? This is your sign, this kingdom in breaking. And the fact is this kingdom that Jesus has ushered in, it forces a choice. We hear an urgency in Jesus' tone in this passage, right? We note that often fire is a a symbol of divine judgment. I'm going to read this portion from um, the message version just for fresh, fresh words, fresh ears. Jesus says, I've come to start a fire on this earth. How I wish it were blazing right now. I've come to change everything, turn everything right side up. How I long for it to be finished. Do you think I came to smooth things over and make everything nice? Not so, I've come to disrupt and confront. From now on, when you find five in a house, it will be three against two, two against three, and so on. And so if we look at this passage and and this fire, this urgency we hear in Jesus's voice, if we're honest, if I'm honest, this verse is not my favorite. 
When Andy and I were first married, he quickly learned that not my favorite means something a little stronger than that. But this is, uh, if I'm honest, this, is, this one is not my favorite. Um, if in the NIV, tw uh, 1251, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you. But division, that just is, it's hard from the words of Jesus. So I was talking to a pastor recently, one of the other Monsieur Day pastors in another one of our congregations, and he was saying that after a service one time, somebody reached out and wanted to meet with him and sat down and said, I didn't like what you said. And he was like, okay, let's talk about that. And the person told him what he didn't like. And he was, oh, I was actually like directly, I was just quoting Jesus. I didn't actually say that. And the fact is we feel that sometimes and we have to wrestle with all of it. This statement, this statement that isn't my favorite, it still rings true and yet also perfectly coexists with the other teaching of Jesus. Teaching about loving others even your enemies, teaching about not judging, teaching about humbling yourself in order to honor others, all of this, teaching about being peacemakers. Matthew 5, 9 in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Yes, be peacemakers, that's part of the teaching. So what do you mean you didn't come to bring peace? What are you talking about? So we have to hold all these things together. And when I think about this, I think about one of Paul's teaching to the church in Corinth when he talks about us as ministers of reconciliation. Let's talk about this from 2 Corinthians 5.17. I'll bring this so it makes sense. Paul writes this to the church. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. That's making the ultimate peace, right? That in Christ, God reconciles the world back to himself, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though Christ were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled at peace, right? Reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin be sin for us so that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. This is talking about being peacemakers. This is talking about Christ as the center of the ultimate peacemaking between a sinful world and God, between us and God. So what is this talk at the same time about division? Well, the fact of the matter is we see this since the beginning of Luke's gospel in these prophetic voices that come again and again. At the announcement of Jesus' birth, when the angels came to the shepherds and say, hey, go check it out, a super big deal just happened, right? They announce glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. They pronounce peace, a movement of God's peace. It's happening, go check it out. But shortly after, when Mary and Joseph take baby Jesus to the temple to be dedicated, do you remember Simeon declared a prophetic word over this baby? In 2, starting in 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So what we hear right from the very beginning is both of these things are true. Peace 
being ushered in and the reality of some division. Jesus brought ultimate reconciliation and he taught us, teaches us still, the path of shalom and peace, God's peace. But not all the world will accept this invitation. So following the way of Jesus does include choice, real life, everyday choices that not everybody is gonna decide to follow. Luke Timothy Johnson sort of summarizes this important note in this section. He says it's the clearest statement in Jesus' own mouth of the division that's created by, created in people by the prophet Jesus as the prophetic voice here. And so it seems surprising because it appears to contradict the infancy account that Jesus would bring peace, right? So how does this fit in? But the answer, of course, is that those who accept the prophet have this peace, but they are then separated from those who reject the prophet's message. And I love how he says it here. The division is created by the diverse decisions made in response to the prophet and his message about the kingdom of God. The division that Jesus is talking about isn't the desire of the kingdom. It's the natural thing that ends up happening, the natural outcome of a life lived differently because not everybody is gonna understand. Luke later records Jesus saying to his followers, listen, as you bear testimony, right, this will happen. You'll be betrayed, even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends. They will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. That's Luke 21, 16 to 19. And so here's why I bring this up. Again, like I said a minute before, the division part, that's not the goal of this kingdom message, but it is a natural outcome when people have choice and diverse decisions are going to be made when people have choice. So I was thinking about this and reflecting on this trip we just took. As I mentioned, uh, we went through Turkey and Greece and we went to the sites of a bunch of early churches. The idea was we were walking in the footsteps of Paul as he was writing letters to these churches, talking about real life ways to live out this faith in the world where they were at the time. And so the extremity of this concept of division really struck me in a more palpable way as we were standing at these sites and seeing, imagining the reconstruction, seeing some of the, um, the ruins and, and where it was that we were standing. If I'm honest, in real time, it was like TMI. It was coming at me so fast. I was just talking to Bill about this. I had to like think about it later as I digested all this information. And I sat back down and I started to read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the two letters, first and second Corinthians, the church in Corinth after I had been standing in Corinth on a very, very, very hot day. Um, and I was thinking, you know, as I read this, we could talk so much about this strange language about hair length and head coverings and stuff like that. We try to make sense of it and it's really good. But when I was standing in Corinth, we just walked through the little gate, the museum was right here and our guide said, look up there. We're standing in the shadow of this huge hill. And on top of it, we could see ruins that thankfully we did not climb to. I didn't want to climb to them that bad. They were far away. But we were standing in the shadow of this hill and on the Temple Mount were the ruins of the temple where the temple prostitutes had very specific jobs as part of their worship. And they indicated their profession with shaved heads to make sure you knew the different of their worshipful worship 
faithful service to these gods, as opposed to recreational prostitutes with long flowing uncovered hair in town. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, that stuff's like really real if you're walking in this dirt a couple thousand years ago. Some of these words that seem strange to me now, it's really real to try to figure out how do we live this out in real and tangible ways exactly in the dirt we're walking in. Now, mind you, of course, this would not be an issue. Like, the Jews would not be engaged in that kind of arena. But you guys, if you came faith to faith in Jesus and you had been a Gentile, this was, this was so normative. This way of life that was around you, a normalized culture would have been radical to change, costly to change what was normal to everyone around you, divisive to people who did not understand your new choices. I was standing then in Corinth in the market, and they said, this is literally the market where you would go, and here's where you would buy the meat, because it's literally directly next to this huge temple to Apollo, and some of the columns are still there. I'm standing in the shadow of the temple to Apollo, trying to decide which meat to buy. It's a totally different situation than standing in Trader Joe. It really is. You're sitting there and you're like, but can I do it? I know that Apollo is not a real god, but can I, can I eat this meat? It's a real thing, and suddenly you just could feel that. What do I do about this? So when I'm rereading this after walking in those streets, this is real everyday guidance on how to live counterculturally in light of the decision to follow Jesus as Lord. And you guys, it would look really, really, really strange to the people around you that all of a sudden you're in the market scratching your chin about buying the meat because you know it just came from a sacrifice to Apollo. You know that and you just are trying to figure it out. You would look strange living in these active shadows cast by these temples. And I thought of it this way. What did it feel like to be immersed in a culture that normalizes actions and thinking that are completely antithetical, meaning completely opposite to the way of God's kingdom? But you're so immersed in this culture where things are antithetical and it's normative to everyone around you. It's like the water you swim in, it's not strange. We stood at Mars Hill, which is this little area where, the, where Paul went to debate with the thinkers in Athens at the time. To, 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 they would set, set up for a debate, and he would go there and try to explain to Greek thinkers the gospel. And you're standing on Mars Hill, and the Parthenon with the uh, temple to Athena is literally still looming overhead with such just hugeness, such majesty over the whole city. You can't, we were walking around shopping and you turn a corner and, and there it is way up high. You can see it from everywhere. You're standing in the shadow of these places trying to live differently. We went to Laodicea, one of the churches in the book of Revelation that was known as a very prosperous city. And we walked into the ruins of this home that would have been, I think, of somebody quite wealthy. It was very beautiful, mosaics and everything. And there was a sign there at the door that people, some people think is the sign, a Christian symbol to sort of indicate, you know, there's Christ followers here. And I was walking there and literally we're in the shadow of the temple 
temple to Zeus with this huge stockpile to hold all the wealth. And I was thinking, what would it be like to be the person holding a house church in this church, in the, I'm sorry, in this atrium of this house and saying, I'm gonna stop and listen to the voice of my slave now. What? Would your neighbors understand you standing in the temp shadow of the temple to Zeus in this world of uh, honor and shame and wealth? It'd be nonsense. We stood at the entrance to the library at Ephesus and it's down this road. It's multi-story, huge building down this road that the sides of the road are literally covered in rotating uh, statues. When somebody died, they knocked it down and put up a next one of patrons, of rich people, of conquering emperors, political figures, gods, personified virtues, all of this. And you're in this place that's just culture, religion, all of it together. And you're standing there and you're like, what? would it be like we stood in the theater to be Paul dragged out of this very theater because you're talking about Jesus and you're saying don't buy those those little idols as the business you're disrupting business because you're trying to live the way of Jesus there's something about standing in these shadows to think these huge structures really embody the culture clash in a unique way a way that I don't think I feel here in Chicago but the culture clash would have been so embodied, so tangible to those early Christians. You're sitting there and it's so in your face, you guys. It's so, you're up against it in a different way. And it would have been so normalized to everyone around you. In an honor and a shame society, the idea of social standing being so visible and known. And you're thinking, wait, you're, this way of Jesus is saying to sacrifice my honor in order to seek the justice of somebody less than me, and less than me was a very real concept. And so all of these things would have been so in your face and it would have been divisive. People who loved you and who had been swimming in the same culture as you just weeks before would say, what happened to you, Melissa? What are you doing? This makes no sense in our world. So the way to get to Jesus' peace, that peace that Jesus taught about and promised, it sometimes comes at a cost. And I feel like that's uh, something that the surrounding culture won't always understand. So in light of all of this, I had two thoughts that I just wanted to share with you when I was thinking about this passage and when I was thinking about standing in those shadows and those places and thinking of the palpable difference of a countercultural decision. And I had two thoughts to share. Number one, this is what struck me. You guys, the only way that this message, this message that would have made no sense in the shadow of pagan temples and opulence and just all of, all of the grandeur of these temples, the only way this message could have taken hold in a culture like that had to have been a true movement of God. It's the only way. And it did take hold, and it was a movement of God. It would have been God actively moving on the hearts through encounter with the Holy Spirit. It would have been people encountering Jesus through the people following the way of Jesus. Only changed hearts ignited by the Lord could have had a message like this, an upside down, right side up message, take hold in countercultural ways. People's lives had to have been being changed by the Holy Spirit. It's just the only way this could have happened. Are we still expectant for that? Are we still expectant? Yes, I love that we get to be a place of hope and healing as the church. I love that. 
but are we also excited to be a place of encounter and expectation for God to move? Because that only could have been a movement of God, and I know for sure that God still wants to move through the body of Christ today. I know that to be true. Are we still expectant? I know some of us feel a little numb sometimes in this season, and that makes sense. But I want to see a fan flamed back, a flame fanned back to expectancy on God's movement through the body of Christ, and that's us. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing I thought of is this. Yes, I think that in those places, in those shadows of those grand temples, I think it would have been pretty shocking to hear that God's cosmic plan was coming through Jesus of Nazareth. Where is Nazareth again? I mean, in some of these places, you just would be like, what's this big message? While you're standing in the temple shadows, you're hearing this message that may not initially make a lot of sense, but we know God was moving, and we know that to be true. But here's what I was thinking. I was like, yeah, but, but they had an expectation of the divine. They had an expectation of something supernatural because they were surrounded by temples. They were longing to know God. There was a longing for something beyond themselves. And so when we stood in those temple shadows, I could feel, yeah, but there could be a warmth to a message as crazy as this because there's an expectation of God. Let us just find the God who is moving and that's the God we believe in. What are the temples that we stand in the shadow of that we don't even see because they aren't built with huge columns anymore? I think our temples can be harder to identify. Self-sufficiency, modern sensibility, whatever that means to you, our right to understand everything, and so it's really hard. We resist holy mystery, acceptance of the divine. Maybe our, maybe our temples that are hard to see, that we're in the shadow of, are our cultural temples like, like comfort at any cost, or accumulation of goods, accumulation of platform, no matter what happens to people around us, what are we independently striving for? Those kind of things. You guys, those are temples that our culture has built. We just don't see that we're standing in the shadows like I saw in the marketplace when there was literally huge columns towering above me. And I could feel the countercultural way of following the way of Jesus. And now sometimes I think it can be a little more subtle. And so what I wanted to do today is just think about that a little bit. So we actually are going to guard a little bit of space in our response time. And I'm going to read a section of Paul's letter talking to the Corinthians when he's talking about actually not being in division. So remember, division isn't the goal. And he goes back and hears in the church of Corinth that some are saying, I follow Paul. Others say, I follow Apollo. And he's like, no, 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 no. Unity, we all follow Jesus and that's it. So this is actually a don't be in division piece of a passage. But as I read the rest of this, I want you to hear the reality that these people would have known and that Paul writes about. This message won't make sense to all of the world around you. This message will be divisive if you're living out the way of Jesus. What I want to do is this. I want us to guard a little bit of space to actually consider our two questions. 
And I want you to hear these words of Paul, and then we're going to have a couple minutes of quiet. And I ask you to think about this in a message that actually is countercultural on how to live, how to honor others, how to, how to give up self for the flourishing and shalom of our world. When we're talking about a message like this, think about these two questions. Number one, once again, only God could move in such a way to make this message just fan to flame as it did. The message of Christ truly changing lives. Are we expectant for encounter still? That's the first one I want you to consider. And then the second one, again, I think our temples are harder to identify, but we still are called to live in countercultural ways. What temples may be casting a shadow in your life that you need to open your eyes to? Because you can't see it, it's not actually built there. But oh my gosh, you guys, so much of the battle is just being aware of the shadows that you're living under so that you can combat them with the truth of the way of Jesus. And so I'm gonna leave these two questions up. Thank you, Matt. Um, I'm gonna read this passage where Paul knows this message doesn't make sense to everyone, you guys, but that's okay. We still get to live in the way of Jesus in light of this. So. Um, again, I'm going to read this. I want you to posture yourself to just respond and see where is a way that my life might feel like others don't understand, but I'm committed. I am committed to this message of the way of Jesus and his way to peace. So I'm reading from 1 Corinthians starting in 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligent of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So God, I pray that in this, in this little moment and actually in the days ahead, that you through the Holy Spirit would highlight moments where our little countercultural decisions to act in your peace, in your justice, in your mercy, in your self-spending for the flourishing of someone else, acting in your compassion, in your wisdom that others may not understand how we posture ourselves in a volatile conversation, how we posture ourselves to serve, where we give our time, our money, our energy, our influence, may not understand, but God, I pray that you would highlight to us that that is a bold move, boldly acting the way of Jesus in the shadow of temples that our culture doesn't even know are around us. Help us to be bold and courageous. And first, Holy Spirit, help us to see. Help us to see where we need to be ignited back to expectation. 
Help us to see where we have uh, temples that we are surrounded by that we may have become blind to because they're so normalized in our culture. Help us to be aware, alert, and active, standing firm as you said, Jesus, to your followers. Stand firm so that we may be saved and that we may bring glory to your holy name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com. <laughs>